Good evening. You are listening to a Rattledge and Broadcasting Network premier podcast, The Four Kings of Boxing, as part of our History of Boxing series. Tonight is Chapter 4. We are talking The Hitman. No, not that one. The other one. The, the real one. The Hitman, Tommy Hearns. And joining me tonight is the punchy pugilist, Patrick Mullen. How do you do, sir? Good evening, Mark. Good evening, everyone. Although that other hitman did, in fact, get his name from this hitman, as he's admitted. So, well, at least he's uh, paying the right homage, and not better just... to take that nickname than the Motor City Cobra, since he's from Calgary. <laughs> Jesus Christ! Anyway, that sounds, sounds like a movie Stallone should have been in, Cobra Two: The Motor City Cobra. Only anyway. if you cast Tommy. All right, so this is it. This is the last of the four kings, and then we're going to start getting into the fights. You know, the real meat of this whole podcast series is the four best guys of their weight class of their generation fighting each other in the stories they're in. And apparently, if, if the Showtime documentary is to be believed, there are some interesting stories for all of these different iterations of the fights and the multiple fights they had with each other. So we're anxious to get there, but we first have to tell the story of um, one-punch knockout power Thomas Hearns. So just before we, we get into the notes of this, what are your thoughts in general on Tommy Hearns? Where does he rank in the four kings for you? I think pound for pound, and I'm not saying this to slight him, he's mm -hmm. probably number four of the four. Okay. Um, great, great fighter. Absolute Hall of Famer, first ballot, one of the greatest pound for pound fighters there's ever been. Mm-hmm. But you're talking about elite of elite company with regards to these four particular guys. And I think Tommy just is, in terms of accomplishments, stuff, he's a little bit behind the other three, which is crazy to think about when we go through his accomplishments, not just tonight, but as we go through the series. Mm -hmm. um, and again, can't stress this enough, one of the great fighters of all time, and we'll touch base a little bit more on his completed legacy as we go through this. But I, I have him ranked four of the four. But that's like saying you have a worse tan than, you know, George Hamilton. We're going to talk about his first 32 fights, of which he has 30 knockouts, which is an <laughs> impressive feat in and of itself. And there were four fights. So just to give you a little knowledge about the sausage is made. Pat sends me the fights he wants me to watch. And what becomes very, very clear in the four or five fights that you sent me within that range of 32 fights, uh, we're going to stop just short of his first fight with Sugar Ray Leonard, obviously. Um, but uh, get winning him winning the WBA title, what becomes very, very clear about Thomas, the Hitman Hearns, despite his sort of lanky, tall frame, despite his, despite how, how thin he is, he has got crazy knockout power, Pat. Talk to me about that. Where does he find it in that spaghetti of a body he's got? <laughs> Uh, Jackie Callen, who was doing publicity for all the Kronk Gym fighters, is probably best known for being the first real successful female manager when she was managing James Tony. Um, had said the, the quote was it was it was like it was Tommy's body, but somebody else's right hand attached to his arm. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, because again, he, and we'll talk about, even as an amateur, he didn't score a lot of knockouts or anything. And yeah, he has a tall frame and, you know, he's very lanky and he appears bigger than a lot of guys, but not physically bigger. He has a, right. a thin frame and you wouldn't believe that what he does in those fights comes from that frame where he has this, this right hand that just vaporizes anybody it touches. And, you know, yeah, you can say there's leverage involved because of his height and his width and everything, but there have been plenty of tall, lanky guys who can't generate any kind of power like that. Uh, you know, Paul Williams comes to mind as a guy who fought about that same weight, very lanky, very tall, but just did not have any kind of real pop to his punches for the most part. And you look at Tommy, who 32-0, and 0, 30 knockouts, most of them off of one punch, and it was that mm -hmm. big right hand um, that just not only shook guys up, it had them not knowing where they were. They were out. They were counted yeah. for 10. I was going to say, there were a few instances in the fights you sent me. Again, there were only four or five, but that was enough to tell the tale where guys' knees quivered. Like, in all the fights that I've seen, you know, we, we did the entire heavyweight series, and there's some great fights in there, obviously, but it's guys, like, bludgeoning each other, and they're going down, you know, their spirit leaves them, they go, they go wood flat and just fall over. No one's knees quivered. Like they were in a haunted house, not like Thomas Hearns does to these some of these guys. I mean, they literally, what's the phrase in wrestling? Stanky leg, stanky or, uh, leg yeah, yeah, <laughs> Anderson Silva, that sort of thing. They they have stanky knees, stanky body, stanky right. There, there are knockouts we see from him where a guy's upper body is just completely out of alignment with his lower body because of how hard they got hit. It, mm -hmm. That's what I'm saying. Like as hard as Mike Tyson, one of the hardest punchers in the history of boxing. Mike Tyson never knocked anybody out like Thomas Hearns does. Very, very different kind of kind of punch, um, you know. And Tommy, yeah. Tommy stylistically, you know, there's that that Kronk style that he's kind of mm -hmm. the most famous practitioner of, where you have the low lead left hand and you kind of swinging it and using what they call a flicker jab, pop, 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 and it's hard and it's fast and it comes from the waist and it's like a blinder. And a guy's preoccupied with that. When he's preoccupied with that left hand, this hand's coming through and bang and just the way he threw it. He didn't really throw it so much all the time as a straight right hand. A lot of times he threw it kind of from a roundhouse fashion behind that jab where he really turned his body behind that and mm -hmm. just had that angle on it and boom, would connect with the guy right on the side of the jaw. I was going to say, like, it's probably hitting them, like, behind the eye or in the jaw, and that's part of why they're they're losing their balance. You know, we're, we're being funny about it, but what's happening in the quivering is that they're, they're losing their balance, they're um, – they're losing their uh, uh, what's the inner ear that it controls equilibrium. Uh, equilibrium. Yeah, they're losing their equilibrium in those shots, and that's why they're going down. And that is pretty top tier boxing technique. Oh, yeah. know, it's, not, it's not about just throwing the punch; it's where you land it. So let's get into it. Um, Thomas Hearns was born on October eighteenth, nineteen fifty eight, in Grand Junction, Tennessee. But at the age of five, would move to the city. He became synonymous with Detroit, Michigan. Hearns was the youngest of three children from his mother's first marriage, and a second marriage would produce an additional six siblings. But Hearns largely grew up in a fatherless environment. There's a pattern here. Um, a gangly, shy teenager, Hearns wandered into the Brewster Recreation Center one day as he heard about a boxing program run out of its basement. What would become the fabled Kronk Gym, as you were mentioned before, Pat, was in its embryonic stages as Prentice Bird and former amateur boxer and Detroit Edison electrician Emmanuel Stewart, that name should be familiar to people who follow boxing, were teaching youths the sport of boxing. 
Thomas walked into the gym and approached Stewart and said to him, look, man, I'm tired of people taking my coats. Can you help me? And Stewart gloved up the young Hearns and put him in the ring with one of the more seasoned boys. And in a matter of moments, he broke Hearns' nose. An auspicious beginning, to be sure. Hearns didn't cry or quit. He merely reached up with his gloved hands and strained his nose out and resumed fighting. Stewart immediately as you do. Was, as you do. That's a mark of a true man right there. Uh, Stewart immediately was impressed by the young man's determination and a 20-year partnership would result. Emmanuel not only helped guide Hearns as a boxer, but also as a young man, as Stewart had also grown up in a fatherless home, I'm sensing a pattern, and knew the need for mentoring. As we're, we're what, now that we've mentioned it, we're one for five on fathers and homes. <laughs> Leonard's the only guy who's had one so far. In just this series alone. Never mind what we <laughs> dealt with in the previous series. Yeah. Just <laughs> <laughs> fucking Christ. As an amateur, Hearns was noted for his hand speed and his length being much taller and having a longer reach than the vast majority of opponents he saw fighting as a lightweight and junior welterweight. What Hearns was not known for were KOs as he finished fewer than 20 amateur opponents, as Pat said before, while winning 155 contests against eight losses, beating future professional world champions such as Aaron Pryor and Bobby Joe Young, while losing in the 1976 Olympic qualifiers to Howard Davis Jr. after winning the 1977 National Golden Gloves, Hearns and Stewart agreed that it was time to go pro. Hearns debuted in his adopted hometown of Detroit, but unlike his amateur career, had developed a KO punch, boy did he ever, out of nowhere, usually from his devastating right hand. After 14 fights and a 14-0 tally, with no opponent lasting beyond the fourth round, Hearns was matched with veteran journeyman Clyde Gray, this poor bastard of Canada. <laughs> <laughs> Oy vey. The very tough Gray got past the early rounds with Hearns, and a visibly tired Hearns was struggling. Going into the 10th and final round, Stewart told Hearns to go out and win the round decisively, but Hearns did him one better and dropped and stopped the tough Canadian vet. Perhaps the most impressively, Hearns knocked out Gray while moving backwards. Yeah, this is where, this was the first fight you sent me to watch. Uh, the video has rounds 5, 8, 9, and 10. 10 is where this guy gets his head knocked off. Tell me about this fight, Pat. So Gray had been in with world champions. Gray had fought Pepino Cuevas. Gray, Gray had fought a lot of the top-rated guys of the day, Harold Weston Jr., and, you know, didn't didn't always win, but he was always a guy who, if you wanted to break through and be a, considered a top welterweight, he was one of the guys you would get matched up with. And he was very much a litmus test, not not so much a gatekeeper because he was rated very highly, a little bit better than that. But at the time, Hearns, there was a lot of hype around him by people in the know. And so the, the thought was made, we have to move up his level of opposition. We think this is the right time. He hasn't gone a lot of rounds. We need to see if he can actually do that. Gray is not likely to go away easy. Let's match him up with Clyde Gray, see how he does, see how he does when a guy resists going down immediately, can take his best shots offhand. Let's see how he reacts to that. And we think there's still a good chance he can win on points in this one because we don't think Gray is enough to threaten him, but this is the kind of matchup you get. And the funny thing is Emmanuel is doing a lot of the managing, not just you know training, but this is a learning experience for him, too, because he's never trained professional fighters. He's never managed professional fighters. The, the whole Kronk team, it was all kids who were amateurs that Emmanuel would load into a van and take the tournaments and stuff like a field trip. And they're all learning this process together. Uh, you know, Tommy, Milton McCrory, Homer Kenty. Just imagining it's like a soccer game, you know, like Emmanuel just has got like a bag of oranges, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, with a veritable all-star team of fighters who right. become world champions or top-ranked contenders all together at the same sure. time. Uh, but, but yeah, so they match him up with Clyde Gray and 
Tommy's winning the majority of the rounds, but you can see like they don't want to test. Like they they want him to believe like you're in trouble. Let's see what he's got when he needs to pull something out. So Emmanuel says to him, "You need to go out and win this tenth round and win it big." And he takes that to heart and he starts lighting Gray up with combinations. Clyde steps forward. Tommy takes one step back and bang unloads a huge right hand that hurts Gray all kinds of ways, follows up, drops him, and Gray does not get up. And Tommy ends that fight in the 10th round against a very tough, durable veteran, which said a lot of positive things about him. One, his stamina is there. Two, his power is just not an early fight phenom. He's going to carry that with him through the course of the fight. And he's not going to break mentally when faced with that kind of adversity or this guy's not going away. So there's a lot of let's check this box, let's check the, go through all and check all these boxes that we were hoping got tested and did and pass through with flying colors. Um, so this fight takes place in 1979 and the footage that you sent me from YouTube, uh, yeah, because of the, the age that it took place in and it wasn't like remastered for television or anything like that. It, it also wasn't set to air on television. It was taped right. as a potential fight to air in case their main event on the TV broadcast ended early, which it did. So, um, you know, it, this is young Thomas Hearns again, this is 1979 and it's, it's so funny because in the beginning I can't tell who's who and he's losing. And I'm trying to figure out, like, is, is it the guy that's winning or it's the guy that's losing? And, like, you have I'm to like, go oh, by I, the skinny, skinny legs, and that's how you can identify him. Uh, yeah, two or three videos in, I figured that out. Um, <laughs> but, uh, as I'm my experience of watching that fight was, like I said, he's his opponent is having uh, quite ease getting around him and walking him around the ring. And he's, um, it, he's not having, and, and Hearn seems frustrated. Which is why when it ends in the 10th round, the way that it does so violently, it's like, it, it, I don't know, having not watched the whole fight, I don't know how true this is, but my instinct is that he might have lost this one on points if it had gone to a decision, but uh, because he was, having, he was having just a frustratingly hard time at the beginning of this fight. And then he gets to that 10th round and not only knocks this guy out, but like it, it took him a while to revive him. And it comes out of almost nowhere. Like he, he's just sort of, like you said, he was sort of peppering them with the left. And then that right comes from another country and, and, and he's done. Yeah. He, so Tommy was ahead on all the cards and, mm -hmm. and by pretty wide margins, but he didn't look great doing it because okay. of the, what gray was doing. Right. Gray physically was stronger than Thomas. So he was able to push his body around a little bit once he did get to the inside and clinch up against him and manipulate space a little better. And that's not something Hearns had dealt a lot with at this point. But again, he's stepping up his level of opposition significantly to Gray. Whereas the first, you know, guys he fought, a couple what you would call no hopers in there, you know, mm -hmm. not 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 a murderer's row. This is really let's figure out his professional skill set and see what we have to do to make him successful. But more than that, what do you do in the face of adversity? What happens when the fight's hard? You know, this was what we talked about among others, like with Tyson. Like if you, you got to get somebody in there that's going to test him because eventually he, someone's going to and he needs to mentally be prepared for that. It's not always about physicality. Um, so I think that I, you know, if I could guess why you sent me that fight, like I would say that that you know this is the first time Thomas Hearns really has to get his mind right in order to get through it, uh, and he succeeds. He succeeds with fine colors. Yeah, and it's the first time again that he's seen on a national scale as a professional. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, you know, a lot of people were aware of Clyde Gray. They'd seen him fight on network TV, not just the championship fights, but he was a name guy through most of the seventies that people were aware of. And so this new kid that they hadn't seen, who's this Thomas Hearns? And you see him knock him out 
knocked him out in the last round of the fight, knocked him out moving, again, I can't show, moving backwards, the type of power you have to generate, the type of balance and footwork you have to have in place to be able to do that is really extraordinary. And that's when a lot of people were like, oh, okay, this guy is somebody to watch. And a lot of, a lot of boxing people in the nowhere are kind of already there based mm -hmm. on his size and dimensions. This is more like the casual fan who stuck around after the main event saw this guy and was like, oh, I'd like to see him again. Yeah, up and comer. After beating Gray, the decision was made to have Thomas fight more outside of Detroit as the Gray fight was taped to air, as we've been talking about on CBS, giving him his first national exposure. Hearns would count among his victims, former world champions. Jesus Christ, Pat. How do you pronounce this? <laughs> I like to throw these at Mark every now and then, but Sainsak Wangsaran. That's the who guy. Was, who was from Thailand. Actually, Wangsaran, in his third professional fight, became a world champion boxer. He won the mm -hmm. WBC junior welterweight title uh, and promptly lost it, but then won it back. He was also a Muay Thai fighter. Uh, but yeah, he was not uh, a match for the hitman. He actually, uh, he would fight him after Bruce Curry, which uh, that was the, the fight you sent me before that. But this uh, this was his 23rd fight, which he wins by TKO in the third round. And I'll tell you, just, just to kind of get ahead of ourselves a little bit, this fight with the Manchurian candidate, whatever his name is, this guy from Thailand, um, tougher than leather. Like, he absorbs a lot of punches and keeps coming at Hearns until he doesn't anymore. The, the, you know, the, the Thai style is very much, you better get ready to use to get used to absorbing punishment, uh, not just in boxing, but Muay Thai. It's kind of a cultural <laughs> thing there. Very, very warrior uh, proud. And so he, he takes a lot in a very short amount of time. Uh, and yeah, it's it's not pretty. And uh, Tom, Tommy kind of, he doesn't end the guy's career, but he really doesn't do anything of note, even as a former world champion after seeing Thomas. And this is only, a, I think, the guy's 19th or 20th professional boxing match after, after a pretty decent Muay Thai career. Probably, I think he had something like 25 Muay Thai fights before that too. So, okay. but still, yeah, a lot of punishment very quickly. Some others on the list here are Bruce Curry and Angel Espada. Uh, these all lasted four rounds or less um, while also yeah. going the distance for the first time <clears throat> against Alfonso Heyman. And that was 10 rounds. And, and, it's <laughs> and according to your notes and a sad dive job against Eddie Gazzo of Nicaragua, to yeah. run his record to an impressive 28-0 with 26 KOs. All right. I, I, I know you did not want to spend time with this, but I'll make you do it anyway. What do you mean by a sad dive job? To explain yourself. It was very noticeable that Eddie Gazzo immediately took a dive. Like, even Emmanuel and Tommy were like, yeah, that guy wasn't in there to fight to the paper. Like, they pretty much acknowledged that this guy's taking a dive. Nothing we did did this result. Um it was pretty embarrassing. I think mm -hmm. I think it was George Kimball had the write up in the paper, like immediately referring to it as the saddest eye job he ever saw. It's um, kind of a, like a Bob Sapp situation. Like, sure, I'll take the paycheck, but I'm not getting hurt. Yeah, pretty much. And uh, I, I don't know if it was because he tasted a punch and was like, oh, he can hit. No, we're not doing this type of thing. But <laughs> yeah, he immediately went down and out. Uh, gotcha. And he got his money and ran. <laughs> Gone, take the money and run. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hearns had moved himself into position as the number one rated contender by the WBA, but a title shot seemed unlikely. A unification bout was being planned between the WBA's welterweight champion, Jose Papino Cuevas, and WBC champion Sugar Ray Leonard, as we talked about in the previous podcast. Hearns and Leonard had drawn frequent comparisons as both men were rising undefeated welterweight stars. However, Teddy Brenner, longtime MSG matchmaker and now an employee for Bob Arum's top rank, had gone on record as saying, forget Leonard. 
This Hearns kid is the guy who fights like Sugar Ray Robinson. He can box and take a guy out from anywhere. Before we move forward, since we mentioned him before, tell me about the Bruce Curry fight. So Bruce had been a world champion as a, as a junior welterweight. Actually, had lost two very controversial decisions to a guy we spoke about in the Leonard episode, Wilfred Benitez, uh, in Benitez's backyard in Madison Square Garden. Bruce is the older brother of future undisputed welterweight champion Donald Curry, based out of Houston, Texas. Uh, Bruce was a very capable, good fighter who just had severe psychological problems at a certain point in time. He was just blown out of the water by Tommy in short fashion, but Bruce uh, actually was arrested for shooting his trainer, Jesse Reed. Wow. Um, there's a whole st- – that's a podcast in and of itself, the Bruce Curry story or the Curry brothers, okay. as a matter of fact. And dark side but of he, boxing over here. Yeah, I, I, Bruce had some undiagnosed uh, mental uh, health issues that at the time led to him doing something like that. Um, Bruce had roomed with another ranked junior welterweight named Monroe Brooks at one point in time in Texas together. They both ended up messing around with the same girl, which caused a beef between them. And then they actually had a fight, a professional fight to, to settle things. Wow. Um, and it's a great fight, too. If you can look that up, go on YouTube and find Bruce Curry versus Monroe Brooks. It, it's very pro wrestling with the story and everything. And the actual <laughs> fight itself is you would think it was worked. It's like a movie fight. It's awesome. Uh, but, yeah, he got he got dispatched real quick by Tommy. And at that point, that's one where if you didn't know who Hearns was then – Wow, he knocks out Bruce Curry in three rounds. This guy's got to be pretty good. And okay. sure enough, like Teddy, Teddy Brenner said, he made the comparison that Tommy was more like Sugar Ray Robinson than Sugar Ray Leonard was um, because of his style of fighting, because of how violent and he was able to knock guys out and, and the, the, the actual technical boxing ability he showed that he built as an amateur and had his foundation with. Um, just a really, a really complete-looking fighter at that point in time. Yeah. You know, Pat... Um, again, I'll tell people how the sausage is made here. We, um, you sent me a list of fights, and then you sent me some notes, and I kind of uh, finesse them into something that uh, tells the tale in a way that people can follow, even if you're not the world's biggest boxing fan. I know what helps you, and it helps me, and it helps everybody, is our great sponsor, Grammarly. Grammarly. If it, if it were not for Grammarly, you would not be able to read my notes. So, That's, Absolutely. Grammarly's AI-powered products help people communicate more effectively. Grammarly helps you write mistake-free on Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and nearly anywhere else you write on the web. Grammarly corrects hundreds of grammar, punctuation, and spelling mistakes while also catching contextual errors, improving your vocabulary, and suggesting style improvements. To download Grammarly today, go to getgrammarly.com slash W2M network. Again, that's getgrammarly.com slash W2M network to download Grammarly for free. Continuing our tale. Um, stylistically, <clears throat> Hearns was seen as an anomaly. He had a long, thin frame, like we talked about before, with very thin legs, like spaghetti legs. But he had lightning fast hands. Gosh, I was thinking about the Sphinx brothers while I was watching him. And, <laughs> you know, and just like how tall they are. And like some of these other guys that were like fighting at, I think it was like light heavyweight that had come up to heavyweight in that, in that Forgotten Sons period. And um, like, well, first of all, Thomas Hearns is leagues better than some of those guys. But just that the frame and everything else, like that's that that kept popping up in my mind when I was watching him. Anyway, um, he uh, he generated tons of power from his right hand, which he often threw as a roundhouse, like we were talking before. In addition, he showed the rare ability to score KOs on opponents while backing up. A largely answered questions about his stamina by going the distance twice and winning handily, and also scoring a tenth round KO of the durable veteran and former uh, title challenger Clyde Gray. Hearns would be the beneficiary of boxing politics via the WBC. Oh, the WBC. 
always the WBC. That's all of them. But in our current narrative, it's Jose Suleiman kind of messing things around. Yes, sir. President Jose Suleiman had ranked former lightweight champion Roberto Duran, who punched out a horse, as the mandatory challenger to Leonard's WBC title and refused to recognize a unification bout with Cuevas going so far as to threaten to strip Leonard of the title. Instead, the Leonard team pivoted to the showdown with Duran, leaving Cuevas out of a big payday. Instead, Cuevas agreed to defend his WBA belt against mandatory challenger Hearns in Hearns's beloved hometown of Detroit. Um, and let's, I'm kid making good. Let, let's speak to the boxing politics involved here for a minute. Um, yes, please. This is at a time when the WBA and WBC are really engaging in pissing contests with each other. Like exactly. real bad. Um, the, the night where they had, and I think we talked about this a little bit, when Sugar Ray challenged Wilfred Benitez for the WBC welterweight title, Marvin Hagler challenged Vito Antifermo for the middleweight title, the undisputed middleweight title, in the same card, both at Caesars Palace on the undercard of that. There was supposed to be a third fight uh, featuring Marvin Johnson and Victor Galindez for the WBA welter, uh, WBA light heavyweight championship. Mm-hmm. And Jose Suleiman ruled that you can't have a WBA title defense on the same card as a WBC title defense in the same arena. Yeah, it would. So because lobster, exactly. Uh, so instead, they had to shift focus, and instead of all those fights happening together, they had Galindez and Johnson had to fight from a different location with Hearns on the undercard of that show to give the live audience an additional bonus, you know, fight because now there's not a championship triple header. It's a championship double header at Caesars and one light heavyweight title fight in new Orleans, which now featured the number one ranked challenger at welterweight underneath it. But just to give you an idea of how insane these politics were at that time, not just today and arguably more so at that time, there's only two sanctioning bodies at the time instead of four. And there's still an ungodly level of nonsense that follows them. Yeah. Um, and then here we are today with 106 champions in every weight division and 1,000 weight divisions. Uh, <laughs> moving on. So uh, Cuevas had established a reputation on his own as one of the most fearsome punchers and dominant champions in boxing. Boy, did he. After a string of early losses, Cuevas established the power punching style that led him to win the WBA welterweight title by KOing Angel Espada in just two rounds and making 11 successful title defenses over the next four years, with only crafty Randy Shields lasting 15 rounds with multiple opponents suffering broken jaws from Cuevas' own vaunted roundhouse right. So this is really like a battle of the power punchers here. That, that was what the appeal of this fight was. It was, you know, who's going to tag who? Can one guy take the other guy's shot? Um, and again, like Cuevas was the jaw collector at this point. <laughs> um, <laughs> his last fight before this, it was against Harold Volbrecht and it was a pretty decent fight through four rounds. And then the fifth round, he catches Volbrecht with this roundhouse, right? Just right on the jaw and shatters Harold Volbrecht's jaw. And that was the fight we talked about where Leonard and Cuevas actually sat down at ringside next to each other talking about their planned fight date in November and what each guy's going to do to fight the other guy and how it's going to go with Howard Cosell as the mediator between them. Um, and then of course, as we've said, politics intervene. And even though that fight had a planned date and they were going to unify the belts and we're going to have an undisputed champion, nah, we're not going to have that right now. Now, long-term that's going to work out just fine for all of us, but short-term it was a little disappointing to not have an undisputed champion. So going into this fight, he's 28 and Oh, 
um, after the dive uh, job with Gazzo <laughs> and um, guys named Gazzo don't get around them in boxing because they're either <laughs> going to dive on you or they're a loan shark looking to collect on, you know, helping you invest in condominiums, even though you never use them. Uh, the TKO over Valdez before that, and the TKO of Espada before that. So I'm guessing by the point, by the time that we get to his 29th fight and his uh, opportunity to win the WBA title, there there can't have been too many other people they could have pointed to. I am curious about that. Did they feel like Hearns was an easy get, you know, was a draw in terms of styles for Cuevas, but did they also, did his management team think like, okay, this will be a good payday. This will be an entertaining fight. Uh, but of all the guys we could pick, um, we're going to pick this guy for any number of reasons. Or was there like just, just nobody else? It's, it's him or nobody. He, he was the mandatory. And you have to remember, too, mm -hmm. by, by not getting the fight with Leonard, that's a huge payday that you're missing out on now. Because mm -hmm. Leonard had such a big TV deal at that point in time that if you fought him, you were going to make the biggest money likely you'd ever seen to that point. Yes. And especially with Quavis, Marvin Hagler's chagrin. Yeah, much more than Hagler's chagrin, then, now, and always. Um, <laughs> but Cuevas also had the additional bargaining chip of, I'm also a world champion. I've made 11 defenses of this title already. You just won yours. I'm an established network TV presence that people like to pay to see, too. And while he wouldn't have gotten a bigger share of the purse than Leonard for obvious reasons, he would have still got a substantial purse. This fight was going to be worth a lot of money. So he had cleaned out a lot of the welterweight division at this time, you know, like the numbers established 11 title mm -hmm. defenses over four years, only one guy going the distance on the other side of things, Leonard had just beaten Benitez. So there's not really the same luster for him to go fight a Benitez at that point who, you know, just come off the loss to Leonard. Who's the next guy. The next guy in, in, as a star quality opponent is Hearns. Who's unbeaten is drawing a lot of attention, getting on TV regularly at this point he is the mandatory challenger. So there's that added component of it as well. And that's why they also take the fight in Detroit because they get a bigger payday to go take that fight in Tommy's hometown than they would in, say, you know, Cuevas' hometown in Mexico or any any kind of middle America venue. Hearns had established himself as a star, particularly in his hometown. And at this point is known not as the hitman, but as the Motor City Cobra uh, because certain types didn't like the association of the name hitman with a fighter. And that was the nickname Emmanuel had initially given him because when he was scoring all these early knockouts, Tommy had a reputation of not wanting to stick around in the town he was in. He just wanted to go home. That's why he liked sure. fighting in Detroit so much. But he, he, like, if he was in Cleveland and he scored a third-round knockout, the same night he's on a flight back to Detroit. So that's why he was called the hitman. He came into town, did his business, and got out. He reminds me of Jerry Quarry in that sense. You know, Jerry Quarry, like, living in Los Angeles. Like, I'm going to go fight in L.A. and, just, you know, it's five minutes away. I'm going to yeah. go home after that. We're done. Oh, yeah, very, very much uh, a reason for that. They're homebody mm -hmm. guys. Um, yeah. But but then, again, certain people didn't like the implication of the name Hitman and that. So they so because of his frame and how his right hand and jab struck so fast and so quick, they came up with the Motor City Cobra, which is not a, not a bad nickname, but not, sure. not the Hitman. After watching wrestling for 40 years, I've heard worse. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, yeah, so this is number – this is um, – Number 29 for him here takes place on August 2nd, 1980 uh, <clears throat> in the Joe Lewis Arena in Detroit. And he wins and he wins in fast fashion. It's the second round uh, TKO two minutes and 39 seconds in. And there, yeah, this is one that you sent me to watch. Uh, he just pours it on him, Pat. This fight between Hearns and Cuevas, like 
I don't want to. I, Hearns was in control of himself. I don't want to make it sound like he just fought like a Tasmanian devil, but like he pounded on Quavis, like Quavis owed him money. This as, is this was a rough watch. You know, we mentioned his hand speed earlier. Mm -hmm. As soon as openings were present, there's not one punch coming to test that opening. There's ba -ba 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 -ba. there's three right. four punches and well timed and well thrown punches. There are moments in this fight, all two minutes of all, all two rounds of it, where Quavis looks like, did anyone get the license plate of the truck that just hit me? Yeah, uh, particularly the end. Um, yeah, and Quavis, you could see that first round when he's going back to his corner. He's like, "What the hell am I in here with?" Mm -hmm. Because Tommy did everything he could to maximize the advantages he had in this fight. He used an extended left hand, which is technically illegal to measure, but he did it, and the referee's not calling him on it. I'm going to do it, and I'm going to keep him at the end of this so I can maintain distance, and he can't get into me because I don't want to get hit by this guy because this guy can crack, and he does it. Utilizes his foot movement, and again, the hand speed is so – the difference is so vast between the two of them. Pepino didn't have slow hands, but Tommy's hands are on fast forward the whole time. Um, and, and with the added advantages of length and reach, it's very difficult to try to get in there, cut him off, and work him over, which Cuevas is going to have to do. So they stop it in the second round, and Cuevas is – No, Tommy corner. stops it in the second round. <laughs> Quavis is saved by the referee in the second round. But I, I after watching it uh, this past evening, I would put it to you that, that the referee might have stopped it, should have stopped it a little bit earlier. I think he takes an extra couple of, min couple of minutes of punches unnecessarily because I feel like he was done within the first minute of that second round. Well, the way he gets finished, I mean, you know, Tommy measures him, Quavis lunges in, he hits him with that first right hand. And Cuevas' whole body does a contortion dance where mm -hmm. he is clearly out on his feet. No, right. there's nothing there. And Tommy just follows up, bang, and drops him face first. Right. When a guy goes down face first, 99 times out of 100, not 9 out of 10, 99 times out of 100, they ain't getting back up. Mm -hmm. And to see that done to a champion who had known, been known for brutalizing other people in that fashion mm – -hmm. uh, Tommy's already on the map as a potential star. He gets stamped as a superstar after that. Uh, sure. As far as stopping it earlier, you got to remember the time we're in. The, the the death toll is not as extreme as it you know is looked upon at this point. Where mm -hmm. uh, we're two years prior to the death of Dooku Kim against Ray Mancini, champions were generally seen as guys they got to go out by going out on their back or in this case their face. Uh, rather than being saved by the referee against the ropes or maybe deeming, ah, eh, you've taken enough shots, it's time to call it. Especially when you have a championship rep like Cuevas did at the time, where the thought is all he needs is one good shot and he's back in this fight. There's a point in this fight, if I'm remembering um, the fights correctly, <clears throat> where he is really laying it on thick, Hearns is, and, uh, and he actually takes a step back. And you can almost see Quavis like like peeking out from behind his gloves, and Hearn's like, "There you are, bam!" And he hits him again, and that's about when he goes down. Yeah, just very, very well disciplined, well timed mm -hmm. effort. Where and, and you know, people are critical of guys today in that they fight very safety first. They don't go in for the finish the way guys used to. Thomas is proof that you can fight smart while still being aggressive and looking to end things. And sure. you want a great example of that? Here's this fight. Absolutely. So as you said, yeah, this is the fight that established him um, into the, that launched him into the stratosphere. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, a lot of comparisons are brought up between uh, Sugar Ray Leonard and Roberta Duran, who knocked out a horse, with many believing Hearns to be the most fearsome of the three. Yeah. Hearns did little to deter this notion with a 12-round TKO win against respected veteran Randy Shields, who took a battering until finally being stopped. Notable were the rope burns visible on Shields' back as Hearns oh, yeah. constantly pressured his foot backward into the ropes with little room to retreat. Hearns had received praise for his devastating power, but this fight lauded him praise for fighting a disciplined yet aggressive plan against a durable foe who wouldn't quit but was forced to stop. So, all right. After uh, he defeats Cuevos, he um, he KOs <coughs> Venezuela, Luis uh, Primera, Primera in the sixth round in Detroit. That's December 6th, 1980. He then, the aforementioned Randy Shields fight, he fights Baez after that, uh, whom he TKOs in the fourth round, June 25th, 1981, in the Astrodome. And that is the setup for the unification fight between Thomas Hearns and Sugar Ray Leonard uh, that takes place at Caesars Palace in Nevada. Uh, and it's going to be a unification between the WBA, the WBC, and the ring slash lineal uh, welterweight championship of the world. But that, my friends, is a story for another day. Last thing here, last little note that you wrote that I think is worth saying out loud among Hearns' most ardent fans was Howard Cosell who lauded him during the broadcast even needling Sugar Ray Leonard about how good Hearns was and you know they just had to burn Sugar Ray like <laughs> how much Sugar Ray just needed to knock this guy out you know first chance he gets yeah and Cosell is a noted shit stirrer in history see the Ali Frazier interview if you ever mm -hmm. want proof of that um and Cosell's known for being a guy whose fandom oversees any sign of logic in what he did. Um, <laughs> and Cosell was always a Sugar Ray guy because, you know, Sugar Ray was the second coming of Muhammad Ali to people. So Cosell had a new foil to play off of and everything. But he watched Hearns fight and just saw the devastating manner that he fought with and decided that it would be a good thing to kind of bring this up to Ray on broadcast. Yes, but what about that right hand of Hearns? It's something special that even you have to be worried about, right? How would you be able to deal with this height and reach? I don't know if you could or not. That's my Howard Cosell. It's not great. It's been a while. Um, fine. <laughs> but yeah, and you, you, you know, Leonard always the the nice, you know, PR guy, hey, big smile and seven up everybody, and mm -hmm. but you can tell like he's getting hot under the collar. Like yeah. he's like, I'll tell you how I deal with this guy. Don't you worry about it. I'll fight this guy and I'll beat him, as any good competitive fighter is gonna do. And you could you could hear that twinge in his voice a little bit, where like, don't you know, I'm still the man here. Don't forget, I got a belt too, and I did, and I fought a lot damn harder to get it than I think this guy did, and I'll show you just why. All right, well, that is the Thomas Hearn story up to this point. So now we start getting into the fights. Chapter 5 will be next month. It'll be October 21st, in theory. And we'll be talking about Leonard, Sugar Ray Leonard versus Roberto Duran, who punched out a horse, uh, fights 1 and 2. So that'll be next month as we start getting into the various fights between these gentlemen. The brawl uh, in Montreal and no marks. So Pat and I and Chris Bailey just did another deep dive uh, in our other passion. We took a look at the uh, the history of WrestleMania, this time focusing on the rise and fall of the Ultimate Warrior, WrestleMania's 6 and 7. And as I said to Chris Bailey, we somehow managed to not repeat everything we said in every podcast we've ever done on the Ultimate Warrior. We found a fresh angle. I was proud of us on that one. 
There's been a few. We worked around that one. I'm 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 really <laughs> glad we didn't, you know, become repeat offenders for the seventeenth time. Yeah, I um it is amazing how much we've talked about the Ultimate Warrior in the decade I've been doing this, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so that's in the archives as well as four and five, and then um one podcast a piece on one, two, and three. And then next month we'll we'll look at the absolute abject mess that is eight and nine, where the stories behind the shows are more interesting than the drizzling shits that were the shows themselves. These are where my childhood ended, everybody. <laughs> I became a jaded, cynical man on those two days. Uh, eight and nine. I, I don't. I, I've watched them in, you know, in just kind of catching up on what I missed in wrestling. But I think this. I think I told you on the podcast. This is about where I quit watching. I'm like, nope, I'm out. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna try to get late in high school and listen to Pantera. Yeah, we had this going on on land, and then in boxing, we had stuff like Bo Holyfield going on. So it was kind of <laughs> clear which one I was a little more interested at the time. Indeed. Um, what do you listen to these days? I know you're in the you're in the gym. I see your Instagram. You're working on the traps. You're working on the biceps. You're it's leg day for you every day. You got the shoulder rolls going, but you got to have tunes. What are you listening to, Pat? I do got to have some tunes. So lately, uh, I've been doing a lot more cardio stuff because now we're transitioning in our wrestling podcast of the year where steroids are no longer legal. So everybody's leaning out and kind of getting thinner. So I'm trying to jump on that bandwagon to fit in a little bit more. Okay. So lots of lots of R and B and up tempo stuff to keep my my heart rate up and like get me going while I'm running or doing some burpees and stuff like that. So fortunately, there's this thing you turned me on to called Amazon Music, and through our podcast, I actually got a free trial of it, and I've kept it ever since. So I can listen to stuff like James Ingram and Patti LaBelle and all kinds of cool up tempo stuff while I'm running and keeping my pace, I need a little pick me up to get my heart rate going and not fall on my face. Absolutely, Pat. We are giving away a free 30 days of the Amazon music trial. You click the link in the pot in the description of this podcast, you fill out the form, you get yourself a free 30 days to stream all the music you want. There's so much on Amazon. It would be indescribable and almost an infinite catalog of music from the beginning of time to the end of time. It's just amazing. We use it on the metal hammer of doom whenever I squirrel and need to play something that we're not actually reviewing, but I need to tell Jesse about the Fear Factory and the Iron Maiden and the whatnot. Um, I, I used it even on a source material once to play Cannibal Hulk for uh, Christian. Fun times. Yeah, not Wolverine Blues. We went with Cannibal Hulk. <laughs> well, we weren't talking about Wolverine at the time. We were talking about Hulk. But I would, I could have played in Tomb's Wolverine Blues had we been talking about a Wolverine book. So, yes, get AmazonMusic.com slash W2M Network to get your free trial of the Amazon Music Unlimited service. All right. That's about it. Uh, other things we did this week real quick. Um, there's up for you now to listen to. We've got our re-airing of the Magnificent Seven review from a few years ago, a review of Andrew W.K., God is Partying, a triple feature of Westerns, for those of you who like that sort of thing. We have Clint Eastwood's new movie, Cry Macho, Concrete Cowboy, and Hell or High Water. Um, I've done a zillion podcasts over the last 24 hours. <laughs> the aforementioned... I did two, and that's a lot for me. I know. Um I did the Mania of WrestleMania, but also myself, Alexis Haina, Andrew Graham, and David Wright reviewed the final season of Lucifer. Um, earlier today, myself and Chris Bailey reviewed, and we, oh, by the way, I want, I, I'm glad I did all this because I, I was meaning to tell you, I made sure I told our listening audience when we did the TV party for AEW Dynamite Grand Slam that you are 2 0 against Minoru Suzuki. He ducks me this time. He ducked you. Oh, wow. Well, I, uh, I know you're very proud of that stat, so I made sure to tell the people that Pat Mullen has two victories over Minoru Suzuki. Me and anyway. Boston. That's it. 
Uh, but you were there, and you uh, you had the same problem I had with parking at Arthur Ashe that I did at the at the Atlanta baseball stadium for Hell Omega, where apparently there was no parking, and I had to park a town over. There was there was parking. They just organized it very poorly, and a lot of people were very pissed off because. Well, I didn't care to miss the Brian Danielson Kenny Omega match because I don't need to ever see anything with Kenny Omega because he sucks. Uh, a lot of people were very upset that they were not able to get in through all the show your vaccination protocol after you park. And then after you park, you had to walk three quarters to, to about a mile and then walk over the Shea Bridge. And then, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that went on that a lot of people were pissed about missing that first match. I, I can only imagine. It was an odd choice to start the pay-per-view that way. Often. Make it right, Tony Khan. All things considered, but you know, whatever. Anyway, my son's so, wife is writing a strongly worded letter to you. So I know you were a big fan of Long Road to Ruin back in the day, uh, and we've got. In fact, you were on one, at least one. You were on the Missing in Action ones with uh, Chuck Norris. Well, this weekend we're we're back in the same sort of well worn territory. We'll have re airs of our two part series on the Rambo movies. So we have uh, First Blood in uh, First Blood Part Two, Rambo on uh saturday and then sunday is rambo three and then just just good old-fashioned rambo we so. have to add to that one though there has to be an addendum for last blood we reviewed that already that that actually is already up so because uh, if all... you ever wanted to know what it would be like if john rambo was left home alone <laughs> all right that's all for me thanks i'm driving uh thank you fat for doing this with me and we'll talk again in a few weeks uh this has been the four kings of boxing podcast be well, be safe, and behave.